0: Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer, and eclectic witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favourite witches. Hello, hello. Now this episode is actually going to be a two-parter. The conversation was so incredibly good and it went for such a long time that I couldn't possibly squeeze it all into one episode. So make sure at the end of this episode that you save the date for when the next one comes out in two weeks time and listen to the rest of Rosie's story. In this episode, I'm chatting with Rosie Quartz, an ex-pastor's kid turned witch and ethical sex worker with a penchant for psychology-based shadow work. I'm so looking forward to sharing Rosie's story and wisdom with you today, so let's get into it. Now, here is a quick content warning before we start, as the topics that we're covering today may be triggering for some listeners or viewers. These topics include religious trauma and abuse, financial abuse, sexual assault, and I urge you to tread carefully or skip this particular episode if listening may cause more harm than good. You know yourself best. Rosie Quartz is joining us via Zoom all the way from Edmonton, Canada. Hey, Rosie, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. so happy to be here. And it's so great to have you here. I'm sure you do so much more than this too. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit more about the work that you do in the world?
1: Okay, so this is going to cover um, a whole plethora of different areas. I actually started um, interacting uh, first with yeah, the host of this podcast. I mean, like a year ago, um, you probably back when I was still doing like Cards Against Humanity Tarot on yes. TikTok. Um, yeah, you were one of like my first witch talk mutuals because I really just got into like into TikTok content to make friends. I was I was seeing all these like witchy people, um, and at the time I was really just surrounded by like a very conservative Christian base, and so TikTok was like this window to all these people who were like me. So um, from there, it actually turned into like an accidental social media platform that is now my whole life <laughs> uh, we've gone from one tiktok account to three total um, there's a tiktok of course for the cosplay and makeup stuff for my kink and educational content um like the sexual assault advocacy consent and all of that and then there's like the shadow work which you want as well kind of like splitting the interest i'm now a twitch variety streamer um, I run my own Patreon, just started my own podcast as well to talk more specifically about um, the accountancy stuff and whatnot. That is called DIY Sugar Baby. And now making like you, that's like YouTube stuff is very baby. Um, I run a full Discord community. It's <laughs> it's kind of like that, that first TikTok uh, account literally blossomed into a uh, bio platform, which is how
0: Supports. That is fantastic. And you are all over. Like I follow all of your little accounts and I was there <laughs> at the beginning, which I think was early, very early 2020 when I myself yeah, had yeah. Just, just joined TikTok as well. And we're all like, oh, let's be friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was so happy because like um, there was so much witchy content out there. So many phenomenal Witch Talk creators. And I was out here just being like, noticed notice me <laughs> <laughs> and I was like out here with my little like because everyone a lot of people were doing tarot content and I was like how mm-hmm. do I get their attention
0: well you got my attention doing the cards against humanity tarot if anyone out there has not heard of cards against humanity it is it's like a card game for adults because it's it is a little bit uh interesting <laughs> mm-hmm good yeah. fun and uh, that got my attention absolutely because i love playing cards against humanity can't say i'm particularly good at it i have a very weird sense of humor that <laughs> only my husband <laughs> understands and so seeing you doing that and then putting it into tarot readings i thought was so so unique and interesting so that was good fun and i loved that content but i've seen you grow and blossom from there into what you are now which is almost unrecognizable in a really beautiful way you've come into your own you've come into yourself I'm really really loving seeing your progression from that uh lovely young girl into this like strong powerful woman
1: oh yeah it's been a process and I mean that is I keep getting that feedback back from people like uh, a lot of my mutuals who started following me way back beginning of 2020 being like wow this is such a a shift to change so COVID was like Covid was my tower card, so mm-hmm. to speak, and just uh, a huge life shift that really took everything, ripped away a lot of masks, and um, kind of brought me out out of like this hiding shell over here into um, what what it is today.
0: Yeah. Now, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk a little bit about the church as we are both, we've also sort of bonded over the fact that we're both ex-evangelical, we're on that pathway. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the church that you were brought up in and when or why you left?
1: Okay, so I was raised in, um, on TikTok, I call it a culture, (laughs) so don't get into any legal trouble at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But. I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. You might hear it also called SDA. Um, The SDA organization was born out of the Millerite movement. If you've ever heard of the Great Disappointment, um, essentially it was born of the movement um, of Jesus is coming again. And we've set a specific date. And from there, when of course, Jesus did not come, unless there was some kind of rapture we all missed and life kept going, um, you got these Seventh-day Adventists, they've got a prophetess, a whole thing that's, oh, there's, um, I think Jehovah's Witness was another one that grew out, possibly Mormon LDS as well. Um, I don't quite remember, but it spawned a lot of these really um, interesting groups of sects of Christianity. And I was basically raised in it. I was dedicated to God as a infant slash toddler. I was baptized into it. I went through their private Christian educational system um, combined with homeschooling, but right up until like literally kindergarten up through till university even and um, married into it as well. Like there was everything about it was entrenched in my life for a very long time. And I ended up kind of almost accidentally having my entire world be ripped away and that wasn't my intention I didn't actually go out of my way to deconstruct it was kind of like this whole journey of mental health but also the education I was receiving um what I had growing up with um, my one with my mom is that I was always told she's chronically ill and all this other stuff. And I noticed that advocacy for her wasn't really there. Um, anytime she would try to communicate what was wrong, it was kind of dismissed and invalidated. So I actually went into counseling as my BA for university. I wanted to be a better advocate for her, and I also noticed that around age fifteen, depression set in hardcore, and. If you raise 7th The Adventist, they're all about high control of behavior. So of course I was putting in everything. My dad became a pastor when I was a teen. Um, we were still really a strict religious family, but then my dad became a pastor, so there's that added pressure. And I am a little bit of a perfectionist at heart. So I went hardcore for these high control of self-behaviors with dress and how you eat and all this stuff, control of thoughts. And as I started Taking these psychology courses and counseling courses, and noticing that my mental health was steadily declining, it kind of became like this growing awareness that everything I had been taught was not right, at least in terms of effective
0: methods of addressing mental health. That must have felt really shocking to sort of have that thought creep in almost that doubt of hang on a minute, this yes. might not be right now I need to look at everything in my life. I'm sure that would have been a big shock for you. So was obviously this education process was part of that starting point. And then did it just spiral out from there or what sort of was the process and how did you find it from there into witchcraft?
1: Well, see, once again, this leads back to my mom. Um, My story um, was, it's very much intersected with my mom. Um, She actually passed away My third year of university, yeah, it was my third year, and she passed away around the age of like 43, I believe it was, very young, very young, right, and so I had kind of been in this place the year before in university, my second year, I had kind of come to a place with my own mental health that was so bad that I basically decided, you know what, Um, if I, I'm going to give myself three months to break some rules. Um, and if at the end of these three months, uh, my mental health doesn't feel better, then go for it. Like yeets, yeets from this mortal coil, whatever it is you need to do. <laughs> so in that, in those three months, I decided to have premarital intercourse. course I was drinking alcohol. Um, I just was dressing a little bit more liberally than I usually would. And I noticed, that the more I engaged in what turned out was actually pretty normal, healthy human behavior, Mm -hmm. um, that my mental health was improving. And so that kind of became like this, But with my education plus this experience of my mental health improving by breaking these rules, I was like, oh, something's up here. And then my mom passed away the next year. And that kind of was like a shattering point for me. Because I had invested everything into becoming her advocate, into becoming a, I'd already been a prime, one of her primary caregivers for so long. So it sort of became like this whole moment of nothing is right, <laughs> like everything I've been taught wasn't correct. And so when it came to like the witchiness and stuff that had started, you know, around the time I was about 17. Um, I kind of had a lot of cognitive dissonance about what I was doing and where I was coming from. But while I was still living at home, um, my mom had started to develop uh, arthritis and things like that in her hands. So I was picking up reflexology, massage therapy, essential oils, uh, like all this like low key witchy stuff. It's like a gateway drug. (laughs) I gave away a drug. (laughs) Turns out that was a door. It's not a door to like any kind of like terrible spiritual consequence. Mm -hmm. Um, I was picking up these like core life skills in healing. And the concept of which to me was very much the traditional version of like healer, wise woman, stuff like that. It was privately, it was giving me an identity. It it was giving me a, a groundedness and a sense of self in my gender that church definitely was not. So um, I knew very much that my family was not about it. They go hardcore for spiritual warfare, which is basically just spiritual LARPing. Uh, But I basically kept it to myself and I was just very low key, like over time building
0: this, this sense of identity with the term witch. I love that. And you're right, the term witch as a feminine and now witch for everyone out there is a gender neutral term. So you can be male, uh, female or anything in between and call yourself a witch. But the idea of witch as a woman, then compared to the church's idea of a woman is so drastically different. One Mm -hmm. is in their power. They make their decisions. They are allowed to learn and, you know, do all of these things that when you're in the church, it is do not question, do as you're told, obey. And if you sit out of line, you know, it's so totally different. So now in in this whole uh, journey that you've been on, what have you found to be the biggest hurdle when deconstructing from your religion?
1: Honestly, the biggest hurdle, at least for myself, was kind of a combination of conditioning and grief. Because there's, um, at least with like what I grew up with, there's a lot of emphasis on conditioning you from childhood onward. It starts like as like from infancy, they train you up in the way that you should go. So there tends to be um, conditioning through positive stimulus, which is like the positive affirmation and serving and being a good Christian, as well as like the aversive stimulus of fear, shame and guilt. And so over time, what that does is it reinforces a a neurological framework that has years behind it. And that is not easily gotten rid of. So even if you can logically know that all the scientific research says that something's okay, if you've been conditioned to believe it's not okay, those walls are going to come into play. Like lizard brain is still going to register fear, even if logic brain is not so. There was kind of like, you still have to undo the conditioning. And then there was also, I found the more I deconstructed, the more grief and then anger I started to feel at lost time. Mm-hmm. At just being like, oh my gosh, I lost so much of my life and my identity, investing my energy in this, in this identity and being the good pastor's daughter. It was kind of like this thing of, I cannot believe they cost me who I am today right like that's Mm -hmm. that's part of the the deconstruction process is also processing the grief of uh, because it is valid that is important to put out there is that a lot of people will tell you at least you're this way now but the truth is like that doesn't make up for what it costs you and what their biases
0: cost you in your life Mm -hmm. I agree I agree, and like whilst I have a similar story, I don't think I quite felt the anger that you're describing at losing time, but mm-hmm. I definitely felt the grief from especially when you've grown up with this as your community, and it's all of your mm-hmm. friends, it is all of yeah. your family, <clears throat> extended family, however far it goes, and suddenly that's all ripped away in my case i was we were kicked out of the church, so it was very oh, much cut and dry. You <laughs> <here>. oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so see you later. Uh, yeah. so it, was, it was very shocking for me. That was a big shock. Uh, whereas for yourself, it sounds like that was more of a gradual stepping away. So uh, interesting <laughs> that we had sort of similar feelings, even though it was slightly differently done.
1: Oh, yeah. I, well, definitely for me, I know the a lot of the anger had to do with crossing of ethical boundaries into my consent, my autonomy by the people in positions of leadership because Um, When you're a pastor's kid, um, and I've spoken about this a lot on some of my TikToks, is that I never felt like I was not desired. Like, there's a lot of people who feel that they got treated badly or anything like that. I'm like, no, I have the opposite problem where I feel very desired because I'm a propaganda tool. So... Um, anger, anger is a defense response. It's your immune system for your emotions, right? So for me, that anger response also had a lot to do with my boundaries being crossed, because even as I was deconstructing, um, that spiritual warfare component pops in. And so the people in my life, like family members, uh, between my ex and I, we had seven plus pastors in our families. So, um, as they would see me start to pull away, there would be a response, a crossing the boundaries in some way. So that is, that is more for me where it was like, there was a lot of grief. And then at the same time, like my body, I didn't even recognize it always at the time, but there was definitely an anger response of, of, of I didn't even know it was my consent for autonomy being overstepped, but still registering it in some subconscious way.
0: Mm -hmm. Your body definitely knows when that boundary has been crossed. You can feel it, even if you can't articulate it at the time. And do you think that what I've experienced in terms of, I have a lot of friends who were children of the pastors and that sort of thing. So I've seen that Mm -hmm. pressure that can be there for kids of pastors, because you're basically a reflection on them is how they see it. And if you step out of line, that shows up on them. So I can imagine that that Mm -hmm. coming down pretty hard on you to, to step back in line and sort yourself out. Did you feel that pressure?
1: Absolutely. Um, And I was doing a good job of it. And honestly, I, I know that I literally could throw the mask back on at any point I wanted to Um, just at any point I could give up everything I've accomplished now and go right back and be like, I've repented and they'd never know I was lying. Mm -hmm. Because, That's just how good pastor's kids get at masking. Like there's literally nothing easier in the world to pretend than good Christian behavior. And and it's (laughs) like, they just buy it immediately. It's because they want that. They want you to be that saved person who's been Mm -hmm. redeemed and come back. Like my value as a propaganda tool has actually gone up since leaving the church. Absolutely. Yeah. If I come back, (laughs) <laughs> That's the testimony, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, I the prodigal wish. son has returned.
0: <laughs> a prodigal oh daughter. Gosh.
1: Oh my gosh! I literally had to report my dad's YouTube uh, re- recently, like his church's YouTube, were continuing to use me as a propaganda tool in
0: that way. So he's still preaching. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, literally. Um, I had a friend notify me and be like, your dad's kind of been kind of sus with his sermons lately. And so I go back and about six sermons in a row were childhood stories of me Mm -hmm. and redemption arcs for accountants, so to speak. And then the very last one, he threw up a picture of me in the sermon, like Mm -hmm. at my grad with him. And I was like, Gotcha. I did not consent to my image being used in your church's social media. And so I went to your YouTube's legal team and I was like, take this down, please. Cause mm-hmm. I did not consent to this. I definitely, cause at no point had my father in the sermons been honest with this congregation about where I am now mm. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So it was like misrepresentation. Yeah, definitely. And that
0: that must have been, I mean, good on you for going to to YouTube and getting it taken down, but I'm sure that was a big shock. Do you have a relationship with your dad at the moment or is it sort of shifted and changed since you've left the church?
1: So, and, you know, I actually get this question a lot because uh, I think for people who know they're deconstructing and in that process, they're aware that there's going to be social repercussions and they may not be in a socially safe environment. Um, There's a lot of us who who masked and are still masking today because we know the response, we're going to lose positive affirmation or even economic support if we come out as being other than the, the Christian stereotype. Um, So for me, I actually decided that specifically because of the religion that my family's in is that they're not really safe, at least at this point, to interact with. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not been in direct contact with them in over a year since I initiated the separation process from my ex. Um, What they believe about God, about the end times, things like that, it's just it's not safe. It's not safe to interact with. It's all about God is the second coming. The Sunday keepers are going to try to unalive us. The the government's coming for us. Like when when I say like this culture gets weird, it gets weird. And so as you start applying like the science to what some religions believe, it it starts to fall apart. Um, Like the prophetess that my family believes in, like Ellen G. White. And she was struck in the temporal lobe as a child. And the temporal lobe is actually the area of the brain where if there's damage. It's very common for you to start having auditory and visual hallucinations. So as an adult, she starts having visions Mm -hmm. about the end times right around William Miller's thing. She became very tied up in all of that and then became the prophetess for the Seventh-day Adventist Church based on her visions However, if you're studying any kind of medical anything, and you're just like, well, she's probably just somebody with extensive brain damage.
0: Yeah. But and then coupled with a, any form of religious conditioning around this storyline, that's obviously going to come through in, in hallucinations of any kind.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's also com- confirmation bias. Yeah. Um, they end up continuing to use her as a prophetess through what they call the spirit of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, spiritual gifts and things like that. So speaking in tongues, prophecy, different types of service, and what they did with Ellen White was: we know that her visions are from God because they correlate to Scripture. Mm -hmm. But that's confirmation bias, because Ellen White had nothing else that was in her environment to hallucinate about. She literally was like, her only source of information coming in was the Bible, was these sermons about the end times. Like, what else would she be hallucinating about? Exactly. Yeah, she wasn't taking in romance books or anything like that, like anything salacious at the time. Mm -hmm. So, of course, she was hallucinating
0: about the end times. I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast. I ask because this series is a labor of love. And if you like what you're hearing, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. Now, I'm curious, since you touched on spiritual gifts, which was a massive thing in the church that I grew up in, and personally, I believe the Pentecostal church particularly is one of the most psychic, psychically active churches, even though they would never call it that. And if you even hinted that, oh, yes, that gift of prophecy that you have, that might be clairvoyance, you'd be Kicked out very oh, yeah. quickly. God, but did you did you yourself experience any of the spiritual gifts such as uh, being slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues, anything like that?
1: So for me, I the gift that I perceived as having was intuition and touch, mm-hmm. because as as I started learning reflexology and things like that, like I started noticing that I could just Feel like different types of energy with different people and pick up on just things around them, uh, especially if, like, you're doing uh, like shoulder massages or stuff like that. You just feel all of this stuff that's in there that they're holding and you're releasing it and you're part of that process. So, for me, I perceived it as a gift of healing, mm-hmm. it was kind of what it was. Yeah, healing hands, laying no, on, mm-hmm. on the hands, exactly. Um, to be honest, like, the concept it bothered me. The concept of spiritual gifts bothered me. Um, The call of being a missionary bothered me. For a long time, I didn't realize why. Um, And down the road, I recognized, well, it's the lack of consent. It's the whole, you've got this, God's given you a gift, or God wants you to go serve as a missionary. But you're like, I don't want to. (laughs) Like, what, what if I don't want to? So, my church did not really do the like slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues stuff, they're the lawyers of the Christian world. And Adventists will debate you in circles. And it's very easy to get lost in what they're saying because like when it comes to the theology, they found a way where it makes sense. But if you look at it from like this, the scientific perspective, the anthropological perspective, sociological sociological perspective, It's easy to pick it apart from the outside, but usually, if you're in that church, you're not getting that next level education
0: um, unless you're actually in They squash any form of critical thinking as well, so that you can't question it when it's happening. And it's definitely not in the culture to question your pastor or question anyone who's a leader or an authority figure. So any of the pastors, any of the you know women's ministries, leaders, anything that's coming at you, it's just sit down and they're telling the truth and they're working for God and what they say is God's word. So it's oh, yes, very difficult for anyone who's starting to question to even try and fight back.
1: Well, it, exactly. And I found um, looking back, something that they were doing was they would give an, a, a sense of authority to these church leaders through the theology degrees. Mm-hmm. But those... Dude, those degrees don't actually really give you like they maybe take maybe one psychology class or counseling class if that mm-hmm. very rarely have that it, even if they've got that right so mm-hmm. these leaders will have these theology degrees where they're um uh, it, it kind of just like we assume they know what they're talking about with the Bible but if you don't have the anthropology if you don't have the sociology the psychology you don't have all this other stuff surrounding the theology. You actually are really only preaching your own perspective, your own confirmation bias at your church. And I found this tweet I caught like last week that just blew my mind. It was so true. Uh, I forget who said it, but it was basically a lot of pastors are literally just projecting their own trauma Mm -hmm. through their sermons onto their congregation is what they're mm -hmm. doing.
0: It reminds me a little bit, there is, uh, I don't even know if it's a hot take or a hot term at the moment in the witchcraft community, uh, everyone talking about UPG, unverified personal gnosis. Right, It's yeah. almost like that's what pastors tend to do. They basically say, you know, this might not, they don't know. I think they think it's verified, but it's probably a result of their own experiences, their own interpretation of the Bible. Doesn't mean it's mm. true. And without, I mean, our church, we didn't have, most of the pastors hadn't been to Bible college, hadn't done any form of studying. A lot of the pastors that I got saw lifted up was purely, oh, they married the pastor's daughter. You're now a youth pastor. Here you go. Here you oh, go. Oh my oh, preach to all the children <laughs> and tell them what to do. Like, it's so frustrating to see it. But when you're in it, you're just like, oh, God's calling is upon them. Been oh, up. <laughs> it's, it's so
1: frustrating. It is It is honestly so frustrating. And at Ethically, pastors should not be counseling people. They really should not. Mm -hmm. And like youth pastors out here talking with young people about like sex addiction or porn addiction Mm -hmm. and telling telling young people that these are doors to addiction. Um, I've heard of like some religions literally have charts that show like a progression of like masturbation to cannibalism. (laughs) i'm like what (laughs) yeah they're just like it's a door to a door to a
0: door door." (laughs) it makes me think of is it mean girls when they when they come on and they say if you have sex you get you get pregnant and die (laughs) you die
1: (laughs) yeah right it's like here's the thing sex addiction is not in the dsm-5 Mm -hmm. Now there's porn addiction because Mm -hmm. usually those types of escapist things are symptoms of something else. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't see a brain change with things like consumption of porn, for example, or sex that you see with like, let's say LSD or cocaine or anything like that. Like the brain change is not there to indicate an addiction. So when you've got like these youth pastors and whatnot out here, educating young people about the dangers of sex and whatnot they're giving absolutely horrifyingly out of date bad information mm-hmm. and it causes damage to people down the road and I just that definitely finding finding out that sex addiction alone was not a thing it was just like this huge crumbling mm-hmm. of like faith for me it was just like all of this stuff just like really like you know I'm like an animation where a stone hits a mirror and it just like cracks and goes like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened in my brain and I was like oh.
0: <laughs> I bet, I bet. And when they're talking about things like this because we had the pastors up in front of the youth group talking about, you know, you do not have premarital sex if you do. Oh my gosh, the worst one. I hate when they do this. Uh <laughs> the crumpled up ripped torn piece of paper. Can we put it back? You know, or the piece of, uh, what do they use, a $20 note or something, they'd crumple it up and they'd stand on it and they'd say, this is your value, this is what you're doing. And whilst your value is still there to God, when you repent and all of that, it can never be smoothed back to how it was. And oh the the guilt and the shame that is built into that so when it does end up happening if you do end up having premarital sex whether that's by choice or by not suddenly Mm -hmm. the guilt just eats away at you and it can do that for years even if you're out of the church even if you're like I don't believe that anymore you still deep down that deconstruction takes a long time to get rid of those things that they've just conditioned you to believe Mm -hmm. that it you know that it affects your actual value. So, how have you found? Because you've now come into this, uh, you educate on on um, mm-hmm. on kink talk, which is on TikTok. Yeah. There's a hashtag kink talk. Um, yeah. So, you educate around sex and consent and all of that sort of thing. Uh, how did you fall into that section? And how did you cope with the the shame that may have come up or the guilt that came up around that?
1: So, for me, and like one of like the primary deconstruction of faith tools and deconditioning tools um, that I found to be just like really effective is the concept of cellular regeneration and neuroplasticity, because technically speaking, there is no such thing as being used up through sex. We're Our brains are constantly growing and adapting. The synapses do their whole thing. Your brain is constantly in this state of regeneration and experience literally just adds to the neurological framework that is there. We have done ourselves as humans such a disservice with this whole you are used up or tainted by touch because we're not. When you are touched by somebody, your brain is building new neural frameworks. And if you are in a healthy relationship, you're reinforcing health. If you are in healthy sexual dynamics, you're reinforcing health. Um, And it's more... Like if you built a reinforced framework, that can be undone, that can be replaced. We've done this horrible thing where we're just like, it's a permanent damage mm-hmm. that can't be undone. It's like, that's not the case. The human body is constantly in a state of rebuilding and experience and taking it in. And um, I know like you said, like the couple of paper, mm-hmm. um, there's also one where it's like the rose, they'll pass the rose around the whole congregation and the rose will come back like, fall apart. I'll be like, who would want this rose? And mm-hmm. I was like, a botanist. <laughs> a witch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, like, there's so many different people who, and that was the thing for me. I was like, a witch would. You mm-hmm. know how many uses that rose still has? It doesn't matter that it's no longer aesthetically pleasing. You could put that in a bath, you could put that in a tea, you could dry <laughs> it and it's hot pop- Like there's so many uses for this here. Mm. Why are you doing this weird thing where it no longer has value because it's not as aesthetically pleasing? It still smells good.
0: (laughs) That absolutely falls into as well something else that I noticed growing up and since deconstructing, this absolute emphasis on things that are aesthetically pleasing. And I don't know if you had it so much in your church. Mm. I know you said there were some um, ideas around what you can wear. Uh, However, with my church, what I noticed was Everyone who was in there, and especially people who were in a position of power, Mm. the women particularly, what I'm talking about is they would all start to look like each other. Actually, the men as well, they would start to be carbon copies of the pastors that were up on stage. So we'd have teenage boys wearing button-up shirts, like suits, like they would look like they're about to jump up and start preaching and it was this, so this this culture of having to look a certain way and be really, really well-dressed, especially wearing things like uh, label clothes, like high fashion label clothes, which – to our church, we had the prosperity doctrine, which was you know if the, the pastors are doing well, yes. that's because God is shining these light on them. If the church is doing well, it's because God has blessed us. If you are doing well in your life, God has blessed you. If you are not, that means you are doing something wrong, and you need to repent and you need to ask for forgiveness. So it's really shameful and absolute yeah. head mind game. It is. But I yeah. felt that that pressure to to dress a certain way and. If I couldn't, because financially, to buy a lot of clothes when you're a young teenage girl, and my parents were like, we're not giving you clothes like what everyone else is wearing, it, the pressure and the the dynamics and the the self and the shame and confidence, yeah. all of that, all for me wound up with I had disordered eating, and I think that was a lot of just trying to fit into this this mm-hmm. image. How did it affect you and your self-worth and self-image going through that sort of thing?
1: So for me, there was actually – I was succeeding at it and burning out Mm -hmm. Um, and the church I grew up in is like Midwest Prairie community their aesthetic at least like especially when I was a kid in the 90s it was horrible it was just those (laughs) baggy flower stack dresses with the floral (laughs) Laura Ingalls Wilder vibes it was so bad Um, and over time though like I said I have a very perfectionistic streak and I made it my life's goal to body all the values as much as possible. I tried to be the perfect pastor's kid Mm -hmm. as much as as I possibly could. And so I was serving myself to burnout over and over and over again and not even doing it in effective, actually long-term helpful ways for the people I was serving. And that actually set me up for kind of like the abusive situation that I ended up in later in life, because um, you're asking, like, how did I get, like, move through into kink talk and whatnot? Um, I started, because, like, I kind of had my TikTok private, Like, so, like it was, it wasn't set to private, but I didn't tell anybody I was making TikToks. I didn't tell anyone I was making which content. Nobody knew about it. Um, and what a lot of people didn't know is that, like, I got married at about 24, I thought that was waiting. So many of my friends, they yep. were getting married so much younger just because sex before marriage was a sin. Exactly, like, yep. Oh my God, I just need to, hmm. And so we're getting married so young and mm-hmm. it was not going well. They, we had actually moved right to the same city as his parents. His father was a pastor as well. Like we were a pastor's kid, he married a pastor's kid. And so it was just so much Adventism. And it was very much part of our lives. There were control issues with the parents and the family and all this other stuff. And so when Ford, um, not the not the car, the the premier of Ontario cut student funding on us because we were actually in the University of Windsor at the time and my ex could not find work. And we were just basically to our families we were like, we got to come back to Alberta. There's actually work here in his field. He can find a job. We're suffering here. Uh, Windsor the city of Windsor of itself is its own there's so many so many horror stories there Um, but my ex actually went ahead and he was in Alberta for about three months before he got a job and I followed and in those three months is when I was making TikToks yeah. I was escaping very like very much mentally being I actually had this plan that I was going to shut down my social media when I got to Alberta I it was kind of like this I had been worn down like these people in my life. They don't know how close they had me to just giving up and going right back to good pastor's kid autopilot because I had left church at that point, but I wasn't out about anything else. And they were really trying to break me down to come back. And I was this close to putting the mask back on and just submitting, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So TikTok was like a grieving tool for me and escape this thing where I was letting myself Grief. I was letting myself be the person I wanted to be. Briefly, it was. It wasn't real to me at the time. It was very much like this is this is me. This is authentically me. And I was putting that out there. And I would watch my own TikToks over and over and over again. And I didn't realize what I was doing is I was reinforcing my authentic self in my own brain. Mm -hmm. So when I got back out to Alberta and I'm with my ex again. And I was just like, okay, here we go. It's time to shut it all down. I'll just disappear from social media. And I couldn't do it. I found myself on the couch at 3 a.m. staring at my phone, staring at the deactivate account and couldn't do it. And instead, I went over to Instagram and made my Instagram public to my family. (laughs) Like basically anybody could see it because nobody knew about TikTok, but for me to make Instagram public, now it was open for like previous people I got to school with to see, my family to see. And that's when they found out about it all. But it was that very decisive moment where I could not give up the person Mm -hmm. that I was building. I just, I had fallen in love with Rosie. I absolutely (laughs) adored this person and I could not give her up. So instead, I committed quite an act of rebellion and made her public. And that basically initiated this process of my family being like, oh my gosh, this, that, and the other, the relationship was very much going downhill, but I was finding like this joy and celebration in being myself, despite their whole thing that was happening with them. Mm -hmm. And I started interacting with King Talk and There were a couple of educators, Queen Anna Algos, for example. They run some marvelous classes. I started taking um, their kink classes and started learning about consent. And I kind of, there was one night where I was on a video call with one of the kink talkers, a a mutual of mine, because they worked in the federal system in the States. And I wanted to ask them questions about uh, my mom and the circumstances surrounding her death. At at the time, out of nowhere, I had an urge and intuition to ask about sleep and adult sexual activity happening in your sleep. And then they went, oh, that's assault. That's tech. That's legally sexually assault. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Okay," because I remembered some things happening when I was much younger back when I was like, we're in the dating stage. I'd only ever been with this one person. And they actually were the reason that I came to the realization that something wrong was happening with me. And as I, like, I started having like this really weird, a lot of joy and elation and authenticity happening here, but in the home life, depression, etc. And so what ended up happening is I caught my ex, I basically caught them and it, it devolved, the situation devolved, my safety was being compromised. And I ended up moving out as basically homeless for a year. And this apartment that I'm in now, that was like my one year anniversary gift to myself of getting out of that situation. But kink talk, ironically, in contrast to the Christian world that I grown up in, I was always taught things like you don't touch kink, don't delve into your fantasies, all this stuff. And it was the kink world that was educated about consent. They were the ones who were telling me like this is safety, this is what it's like, this, this is the prize model, freely given, reversible, enthusiastic, all that good stuff. And it was, once again, another, like, mirror-shattering moment for me to interact with the kink community and realize how vital and important kink education is to deconstruction of faith. And, like, kink, kink falls into witchiness so easily. Like, both of them have rituals, both of them have scenes, both of them have intent.
0: Yeah, I can see that. It sounds like you had to be really brave. A couple of points on that journey as well, especially when you decided to make your Instagram public, that's a very brave step to do because you would have known what that meant. You would have known the door that that was opening and there's no turning back from. There is, but there, you know, there wasn't. So that's very, very brave of you. I was getting shivers as you were telling me. So It sounds like (laughs) that was all part of what you were supposed to do to come into who you are now. So that's fantastic. Now you, you studied psychology, so I'm interested. You you're telling me that kink talk is sort of what told you about consent and, and all of that. Did was that never discussed during your university degree? Okay.
1: So my my degree was, I got my degree in adventure-based counseling from the Adventist University I attended. Uh, okay. It was so, at Adventist
0: University. Got it. Yes.
1: <laughs> and then when I got married, I started working full-time in senior disability care. And that that also, like when I started realizing how professionally you're supposed to treat people who are ill, who are disabled, who are elderly versus the Christian version of service, I was like, Wow. There's so much harm that's being perpetrated here, especially ethically. Um, But then I started taking part-time psychology classes. And because the credits didn't transfer, because it's a private Adventist University, I had to start from zero in psychology again, taking intro to psychology. And I'm really grateful for that. I was frustrated at the time because I was like, I I know this, I have my degree in this, why do I have to Mm -hmm. start again? And that's when it clicked. what was being taught here because um a huge portion of the students are theology students and when i realized what was being taught here it's very different yeah (laughs) The, the secular focus versus the christian focus is vastly different and so it really opened my eyes to the focus over here with christianity the private christian universities is behavior modification conditioning tactics And over here we have humanistic, cognitive behavioral, cognitive, like the whole focus really shifted. Um, As I'm doing this study um, and I'm I'm like, I'm comparing the different types, especially with counseling and things like that, I'm getting this viewpoint of um, actually Christianity in leadership, a lot of them have been, a lot of it is crossing ethical boundaries of autonomy and consent by treating people as though they're spiritually unconscious. Um, You know what, like first aid, you can provide first aid if if the person's unconscious without their consent. But otherwise you go like, hey, I'm Rosie. I am certified in first aid. Can I help you?
0: Yes, that's the first thing they talk
1: about. Exactly. There's consent there. And with Christianity, it's like there's this whole thing of if you're not Christian, you're spiritually unconscious and therefore you don't know what's best for you and we can overstep your consent on your behalf. And as I'm deconstructing this, I'm like we are causing so much
0: harm here. Absolutely. So with your your psychology uh, background, uh, obviously you teach a lot on shadow work which blends really nicely with that. So can you tell us in your words what shadow work is for those who may not know?
1: Okay, so there's some very important key elements to shadow work. Um, first of all, it has, the concept of it has existed within Indigenous communities for a long time. Um, there is a little bit of like colonization to it, I found in pagan witch communities, um, but it has existed for a long time and there are there like communal pockets of it. We tend to view it as being an individual process, but um, communal indigenous and POC communities often use it communally. Mm-hmm. Um, it became popularized um, through Carl Jung's concept of the shadow self. So our the connotation of it today is not inherent, like shadow sounds witchy and pagany and stuff, but no, shadow is a reference to Carl Jung's theory that because you had Freud, right? So, Freud's psychoanalyst of uh, like the id, ego, superego. Mm-hmm. When you kind of like you see this gradual process from Freud to Carl Jung, you've kind of got um, like the shadow self was tied to the, the subconscious. And it's um, the, the original concept was repression, these things about yourself that you perceive as being undesirable. And so you kind of push it back. And we went, we've sort of gone back and revisited that concept because we found that repression doesn't equal processing. Instead, we're holding it. It's still there. It's still bothering us or you've got masking and things like that. Like this is, this is a concept that is going on and has grown It expanded and it, it keeps going into some very interesting places. However, Shadow work is not covered by any realm of like psychological school. Like you can't get a degree in it. You can get certifications, but if anybody tells you that it's, it's something on that level of like a school of psychology is covering it. It's not currently. Uh, Cause like if you're looking for a therapist or not, you're looking for someone who's licensed and registered with a university of psychology in their area that does not exist for shadow work. Um, and also, shadow work, thus, is not a replacement for therapy. It can be therapeutic. Um, like, you and I know this, like, the back of our hands. But a lot of people have kind of, there's there's predatory spiritual people who take the concept of shadow work and offer it up as if it were a replacement for therapy. When the truth is, when you've got trauma, like, trauma impacts your brain on a literal, physical, biological level. So shadow work, like let's say that you've got trauma and you actually, it's the trauma has caused brain damage um, in a way that like impacts how your brain is taking in neurotransmitters. Uh, You're gonna wanna talk to a professional. Like you're gonna wanna talk to someone who's able to identify that and prescribe medication if need be. A shadow work professional isn't going to know how to address any kind of physical damage done to your brain by trauma. Mm -hmm. so that's one reason why we're like hey (laughs) there's trauma please go speak to a professional shadow work is is kind of one of those things where it's a processing tool and it is not a solution it's Mm -hmm. just a tool that you can
0: use throughout your life and it's something that you can unfortunately re-traumatize yourself with as well if you're not careful and if you go somewhere that you're not ready to go yet we don't as what I see out there in social media, and I'm really careful when I do anything touching on shadow work to say, do this alongside a licensed professional that you can talk with, that can help you through it. Uh, Mm. If you don't have access to that, because that is what a lot of people see this as. I don't have access, financial access to uh, a professional, so I'm going to do it myself. But you, you can really harm yourself if you're not going at it properly alongside someone if you've got trauma in your past. And so it's really, really crucial that people understand that or at least understand their limits or go super, super slowly and super gently. It's, you know, one thing to recognise an area that you may have repressed that might actually be a benefit to you, which a lot of people do when they're coming from religion. They've repressed these parts of themselves that are not accepted in the church and to suddenly just unearth them that could be really traumatizing. Like, Oh, actually I am like that. Oh no. <laughs> and then they freak out and uh-huh. all sorts of things can happen, but to sort of unearth it slowly and be like, okay, that's a possibility. All right. We'll just put that down there now. I'll just think on it. Let it let myself process that. Uh, but yeah, if you, yeah. if you have access, definitely do it alongside someone who knows what they're doing because it can be damaging.
1: Oh yeah. I'm like, I, I don't know if you noticed like the progression for a lot of our mutuals and like even for myself included, um, like witchy pagan concepts being indicators of something else, but we weren't seeing it at the time. Like, there's a couple of things that became really big last summer on TikTok, and that was empath and veiling.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, veiling. I remember that being a big, big it thing.
1: Huge. It was huge. People being like, veiling is helping me shield from other people's energies, and I'm an empath, and I can sense other people's stuff and whatnot. And then a whole bunch of people the next year being like, so I was diagnosed autistic.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And then having to process that or like, there's just <laughs> a neurodivergence they weren't aware of or trauma they weren't aware of. And they were like, well, I talked to a therapist and I have fond trauma responses and am hyper aware mm-hmm. of uh, like of other people's emotions because I need to keep myself safe. Yes that was kind of a huge thing. And I find like shadow work can sometimes be the initiator to bigger processes. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times like shadow work to me is literally just like a tool because often what is being repressed and what you might see as you do shadow work leads to bigger things. Like if you're repressing, you might find out that that was a mask because you're neurodivergent. You might find that you were bisexual and you are masking your attraction to, the same gender it's there's so many different things that like shadow work basically initiates the awareness and then from there you move on to addressing what that shadow work then made you aware of that's to me the most effective form of shadow work is literally awareness of what is there and then once you've been
0: made aware going on from that point So what would you say is the beginning process for becoming aware? How would you begin your shadow work journey to to opening up your self-awareness?
1: So shadow work is fairly flexible. You don't have to do it while you're writing. You don't have to be traditional about it. You can do it kinetically if you have trouble focusing in certain ways, like meditation or whatnot, like you're just sitting there. You can do it while swimming or running. shadow work really is just that whole being, being with yourself in what is uncomfortable and recognizing when you, something uncomfortable happens and being like, oh, that, that didn't feel good. Why did that not feel good? And then examining it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times with shadow work, and it can even be positive affirmation. A lot of people don't know this, but like positive affirmation isn't always safe. There's a lot of times positive affirmation is used as a form of conditioning or being like, I'll give you this as long as you behave kind of thing. Right. So shadow work can also be, um, I, I'll an awareness of like, I'll lose positive affirmation. If I change, what am I hiding that will cost me positive affirmation? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like this shadow work is a very internal process that nobody else has to know is happening. Um, shadow work can be a very effective tool for deconstruction of faith because it's kind of sitting down with what's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and that can also lead to being like, Oh, I'm not actually Christian. I don't believe this. Or I don't, even if this deity is real, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. So shadow work is kind of like that little tool, that private thing that you can do to process and be like, you know what, maybe this isn't healthy for me. And you can sit in that shadow work that nobody else has to know about and privately come to your adult informed decisions about what you want to do for your own well-being and then act from there. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank you for listening to part one of Rosie's story. Part two will be out in two weeks time on the next episode. And I look forward to chatting with you then. Bye.